Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage One, online accounting software designed to create freedom for small businesses to succeed. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host, Ron Baker, and on today's show, we are thrilled to have with us Rory Sutherland of TED Talk fame. Rory is the vice chair of Ogilvy Group UK. He studied at Christ College in Cambridge and then became a teacher before joining Ogilvy Team in 1988, where he worked on such brands that you might have heard of it as Amex, Compaq, Microsoft, IBM, EasyJet, Unilever. But what we really want to know, Rory, is did you ever get a chance to stay with David Ogilvy at Chateau de Tutouf? I have stayed at the Chateau de Tutouf <laughs> on a few occasions because David's widow, uh, Herta Ogilvy, uh, still lives there. And rather fabulously, there are about 33 spare bedrooms, it has to be said. But rather fabulously, she runs the place as a, uh, effectively a kind of conference center and brainstorming center, uh, mostly used by Ogilvy still. Um, I only met David Ogilvy once, I'm afraid to say. I think it was in 1989 uh, when he came to London. Um, I can date it fairly accurately. It must have been shortly after the uh, Eurostar, the railway line from Paris to London, opened. David had an absolute paranoia of flying. And I think one of the reasons he was starting to visit London a little more often at that point was he could now do the journey by, by rail. Well, excellent. It sounds like the, the chateau is a, a, a weird combination of, of Mad Men and uh, and uh, what's the, the show on the BBC with the, with the, the the that's so popular now. I can't think of it. I should have thought of it. Um, anyway, the, but these, this odd combination sounds pretty cool. It's an astonishing building. I mean, the strange thing was that uh, I think David bought it. I think he was delighted that he did, but I think it was the result slightly of what you might call a bait and switch by a French realtor uh, in the, I think, late 60s, which is that David crossed the Atlantic with the full serious intention of buying a house in Paris. Yeah, a downtown Abbey. On arrival, he was told that the house in Paris had been sold. However, there was a 12th century chateau about 300 miles away that he might be interested in. (laughs) And uh, this man must have been a remarkable salesman because I think shortly afterwards, David found himself, without ever intending to do so, as the owner of this extraordinary, uh, absolutely extraordinary building. Uh, uh, Really tremendous. It's. uh, you know, it is one of those great privileges if you work for Ogilvy to stay there. You know, it's uh, it's unforgettable. We always jokingly say that anybody who stays there stays with Ogilvy for an extra five years. And you know, Herta, of course, is a wonderful uh, hostess and absolutely charming and extraordinary in her own right. And it, it is still imbued with the spirit of the man. And indeed, you find his library completely intact. Some of his uh, shoes and other uh, accoutrements are still uh, sort of hanging where they were left. So. Uh, and, of course, he's buried there as well. Right. Uh, so uh, it is truly magical. 
Yeah, Downton Abbey is what I was was thinking of, and yeah, then, cool. and then yeah. <laughs> and then uh, it, it also there's a, a this idea of uh, of everyone coming together in that one spot, pretty pretty exciting. So really cool. So what what about pre Ogilvy? What were some of the things that you did other than teach school? Um, I was a classicist and uh, taught classics only very briefly, in fact. I was only a teacher very briefly before suddenly having a, a sort of minor panic attack and realizing that if I went straight from university to be a teacher, I'd effectively end up spending my entire life in educational establishments. And so uh, shortly after starting teaching, I started applying to the graduate programs of uh, various London advertising agencies. Um, before that, my father was an entrepreneur um, and uh, both a sort of property developer and ran uh, a series of small businesses. I think a background, by the way, which is very helpful to anybody. I think growing up, if your parents are shopkeepers or restaurateurs or some kind of business like that, it is uh, you know, a great advantage, partly because, of course, the great thing with a small business is you see a little bit of everything. You see everything from finance to marketing, um, you know, to management and so on. And you see it in microcosm, uh, in miniature, as it were. And uh, so that was a very good background. I grew up on the, on the Welsh borders, uh, which is, I was, I was born in Usk, um, and, um, which is uh, 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 more or less, I suppose, 10 miles within uh, Wales. Uh, I went to school in Monmouth and um, uh, did, did uh, classics and mathematics as my kind of final three specialisms when I was in uh, secondary school. Slightly weird, uh, dissonant combination doing maths and classics. And I think in the short term, it was a bad thing. In the long term, I'm grateful I've done it, because if you've done maths to a reasonably high degree, um, I, think, I think there are two useful things about it. Doing classics has a value which is... Uh, it has a value in itself. I mean, learning about other civilizations and so forth. It also has a value in that... Um, I think studying German or Latin or Greek, those languages which decline, um, give you the great advantage that when you need to write, you know for sure whether a sentence you're writing in English hangs together grammatically or not. And I think just that confidence, slightly being able to understand the under-the-hood stuff about language uh, is useful. I, th- I think so much of education is like this. It's actually a bleak uh, you know, you don't study things for the immediate value they bring, but because they bring you value, uh, unexpected value later in life in uh, some apparently unrelated way. Talking well, of oblique, by the way, I'm a very, very big fan, and I'll recommend the book very highly. I'm sure it's published in the U.S. as well as the U.K., a Financial Times journalist called John Kay uh, has written a book called Obliquity, which I think deserves to be more famous than it is. And one of his points about that is that... Um, most goals are, in fact, more successfully pursued obliquely than they are directly. So, for example, he's a great critic of the shareholder value movement because he says those companies that most directly and single-mindedly pursue profit aren't ultimately the most profitable. Right. Roy, so many great points in there. You're so right about having parents that owned a bit. I mean, my father's a barber, and that I, I, I kind of credit that to my lifelong fascination with, with businesses and entrepreneurship. And I, too, love John Kay. I've read all of his books. I, I think he's a brilliant economist. And, and that's a great segue to our next kind of theme that we want to talk to you about, which is economics. You, I think you wrote in the Wiki Man that you, you got sick and you laid in bed for a few days and you devoured Stephen Landsberg's book, 
the Armchair Economist, which were huge fans of Steven Landsberg. We love the guy. And I've actually had a chance to meet him. And I, I wanted to ask you about that. And then how did that lead to you becoming a devotee of Ludwig von Mises? I suppose it's an interesting thing. There were other books I read as well. There's a very good book. Um, I suppose he'd be on the other side of the political spectrum to Landsberg by Robert uh, H. Frank called The Economic Naturalist. Definitely. Um, I, also, I also read books, by, a few by Tim Harford. And I suppose I, I, I found this fascinating, partly because it was clear that uh, neoclassical economics had a tremendous vocabulary. And uh, I felt in some ways the scales falling off my eyes. You know, a lot of the things I'd struggled to voice or, or um, articulate uh, in business conversations were suddenly helped enormously by having this model. And at the same time, I was intrigued because some of the assumptions of uh, neoliberal economics, particularly around human behavior, which is something you come to understand a little bit after uh, 15 or 20 years in the advertising industry, were patently um, incomplete or in some cases, I'd say, diametrically wrong. Um, I still hold to this view. But the other interesting thing about the Austrian school, of course, which would appeal to me, uh, don't get me on uh, areas which I know some Austrians get absolutely obsessed about, like currency and the gold standard and so forth, and the fact, <laughs> right, that, inflation, right. the, the fact that inflation unfortunately suffers because its original meaning has now been usurped by another completely different meaning. And I appreciate all those arguments. My interest in von Mises, I think, was simply that the Austrians understood that value was subjective. And there's an extraordinary sentence I read, um, uh, which I think von Mises makes the point. He refers back to the French physiocrats who tried to believe there was a kind of absolute value, that uh, you created value when you extracted something from the land, whether it be quarrying or agriculture. And if you subsequently then took that good and fashioned it into something else, if you turned wheat into bread, you were almost exploiting the farmer because the only person who created value was the person who grew the grain. And by then turning it into bread you were, you know, and making further money, you were almost, you know, exploiting the intrinsic value somehow. All very strange. Um, but von Mises points to these physiocrats and, and rightly says they were pretty deluded for a time. And then makes the point, which is the first point I'd come across, which was um, in economics, which was truly sympathetic to marketing and advertising, when he said, I think there's no sensible distinction to be made between the value created in a restaurant by the man who cooks the food and the man who sweeps the floor. One of them creates the primary good, which is the food, but the other one creates the environment in which it's possible to enjoy and appreciate the food. Correct. And to make a distinction between these two is a kind of false dichotomy. And I thought it was fascinating because, of course, neoclassical economics um, really can't understand marketing at all because it, it assumes a world of perfect trust and perfect information. And, of course, it's perfectly fair to say that in such a world you wouldn't need a marketing function and you certainly wouldn't need advertising. If everybody knows their preferences perfectly, knows exactly what's available and can completely trust every single transaction they engage in, then the kind of signaling activities that are practiced by advertising agencies, by marketers and so forth, would indeed be completely unnecessary. And so it was interesting to see in von Mises and his idea of subjective uh, view of value someone who really understood that, no, 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 it isn't as simple as that. Nothing really has an intrinsic value. It entirely depends on how we frame it or perceive it. You can produce the best food in the world, but if the restaurant stinks of sewage, you won't enjoy it very much. And in the same way, you can produce the best car in the world, but if you market it badly, um, no one will want it and no one will buy it. 
Right. And I thought, you know, I, I found that an extraordinary uh, eye-opening moment because so much of economics had been very interesting to me, but it also seemed to proceed on the assumption that the business in which I'd spent 20 years or so shouldn't really exist. Right. Well, that whole perfect competition model is just completely bogus. I mean, it, it, it's an interesting model, but it certainly doesn't explain how the world works. It's really a contrivance to make the maths neat, isn't it? It is. Which is it is. Knowledge markets as they really are, where, of course, people's preferences are affected by the preferences of others. Uh, imperfect trust, asymmetric information. Then you realize exactly the economic function that marketing serves. And um, so, no, I mean, uh, I mean, this isn't new. I mean, I think someone called Pigou, who's most famous, I think, for Pigovian taxes, he made this point in the 1920s that from a standard economic point of view, the whole advertising industry was an anomaly. Right, right. No, that's exactly right. I, we got to take a break here in, in about a minute, but I just wanted to get your reaction to, you know, Mises on purpose, use the term human action, not behavior, under the, the assumption that, you know, my animal behaves, my dog behaves, but humans act because we, we act with a purpose, with some type of objective, and we also learn. I, and, and for that reason, I'm uncomfortable with the term behavioral economics, even though I know that's the popular way to describe it. But what's your take on those terms? Well, I suppose, and um, I, I know, uh, speaking to Richard Saylor, the author of Nudge, one of the things he remarked to me was that um, uh, whenever he appears in public, there's always one person in the room who's the, um, the mandatory lone Austrian who will come up to him afterwards and say, well, of course, Mises sorted all this out years ago. It's called praxeology. And right. I think it's fair to say, uh, you know, without being a specialist in this, I think it's fair to say that praxeology uh, was a precursor of uh, behavioral economics. It sought to rest economics on psychological foundations. It's also fair to say that Adam Smith got there first in the theory of moral sentiments, uh, which he wrote, I suppose, what, um, 59, was it? So it would have been about, uh, yeah, it would have been about 16 or 17 years before the wealth of nations. Right, but right. But he, he had clearly recognized that there were uh, certain human affections, or what you might call emotions in modern language, that affected us and that we weren't entirely self-interested um, and so forth. Now, I think, it, I think it's interesting. He makes a very strong distinction between humans and animals, which quite a lot of evolutionists might not be comfortable with. Um, you know, I think that we are, in a sense, the human, uh, human psychology is bolted together. I think it's multi-modular, and I think there, you know, th- there are inescapable elements we have which are, um, you know, very much part, part of our chimp past. Some of them operate at a completely unconscious level, but they still operate. So I was, yeah. I was just funny enough, funny enough having an interesting discussion today. I noticed that Malaysian Airlines is going through, uh, you know, a horrendous time in terms of a fall off in passenger volumes because you've had two fairly well publicized um, accidents. Now, I think all three of us here, the statistician in us knows that really we should be no less willing to, tra- to fly on, on Malaysian Airlines than we were uh, two or three months ago, maybe only by a very small degree. But what we also realize, and so, you know, if I were being purely rational, I might be prepared to switch to Malaysian Airlines in return for something like a $10 discount to reflect the likely statistical outcome of my flight, which I suppose you would revise slightly downwards uh, as a result of those two incidents, but not by much. At the same time, I'm also conscious of the fact that were I to board a Malaysian Airlines jet in the next month, I would be five times as frightened as boarding a British Airways jet. 
and it's inescapable, it's not rational in statistical terms, but in truth, I'd be prepared to pay quite a bit to avoid those feelings of unease. And, and so, after our break here, Rory, we'll, we'll get back into this. I think that, what you, that you're making a, a great point here that, that businesses then, then do internally as well in that they then need these statistical analysis, which they know are not necessarily rational or real to make decisions on a day-to-day basis. But after the break, we'll talk uh, more with Rory, Rory Sutherland. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. As an entrepreneur, you're on an adventure. But there are parts of your business, like revenue and expenses, that don't feel very adventurous. At Sage One, we get it. We give you tools like easy invoicing, simple accounting and reporting, so you can tackle your less exciting tasks by automating them. Stronger control of the numbers means more opportunities for profits. Sage One has integrated payment options that can actually increase your cash flow. Getting paid faster? Yes, please. It's time to take the boring out of business and get back in the action. Visit SageOne.com today. Your free trial is waiting. Are you interested in the topics discussed on The Soul of Enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose, Measure What Matters to Customers, and his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E. And follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we're back with Rory Sutherland. Another way to get hold of us, if you want, is to tweet and use the, the hashtag TSOE for The Soul of Enterprise. And if you'd like to do that live, we would be happy to hear, hear anything that you might have to say about the show and maybe even a question for Rory. That'd be great. Um, Rory, in uh, the Wikiman, you write, I think that the pace of technological innovation is going to slow down. And you acknowledge that this is not a majority view, but you think that the fundamental innovations uh, that we can make are just not that huge. But we want to ask you about things like uh, the driverless car or if you've heard of graphene and 3D printing, space, or even Bitcoin. Do you think any of these are potentially disruptive or are they only going to be sustaining? It's actually very difficult to predict whether the the pace of innovation, and of course it all depends how you measure innovation. I mean, I would argue that Halo and Uber are quite significant innovations, in fact, uh, whereas in technological terms, they're relatively simple. But I think they're very important for the, um, they're what I describe as psychological innovations. 
Now, if you measure how good a taxi is objectively with call-out time and so forth, there's nothing that new about Uber. You've always been able to telephone for a car. Uh, nothing really that exciting about it. In psychological terms, however, between phoning for the taxi and the taxi arriving, you enter the kind of twilight zone of uncertainty. Where is he? They said five minutes. I can't see him. Shall we go out on the street? Maybe he's parked around the corner. And Uber removes all that and makes the transaction cost of booking a taxi. It doesn't make a taxi any more or less valuable, but it massively reduces the transaction cost, the emotional transaction cost of ordering one. And so it's very complicated how you measure innovations because there are some quite trivial things that don't use very advanced technology which make quite a large difference to human life. Um, I also think we have to understand that ideas, to use um, a wonderful fra uh, phrase by a man called Ridley who's written some very good books. One of them is called When Ideas Have Sex, which is that what we can't predict is how you know, two or three separate ideas combine themselves into something entirely new. What I would say, though, is that in kind of objective terms, it's interesting to see that air travel, um, uh, you know, uh, commercial aviation, it's, it's in, in effect got slower in the last uh, 15 years since Concorde stopped running. And that in the, uh, in, in the very conventional view of faster, bigger, um, I can see that in quite a few forms of... Um, uh, quite a few forms of innovation, we do reach natural physical limits. Uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that there are limits to, you know, the sensible size of ships. There are limits to the speed of air travel. You know, at, at, at some point, simple physics takes over, which is that, you know, I, I guess air resistance is the cube or possibly the square of velocity. And at some point, the gain in speed just becomes uneconomical. Now, that's not to say, however, I, I would argue that as a, as a lateral thinker, perhaps the next big invention in air travel will be pharmaceutical rather than technological. I came back from Australia about three weeks ago, and I remember thinking, after a journey of 23 hours, the real way to improve that is to find a system of effectively putting me in a box, stacking me in a plane, and uh, knocking me out for 23 hours. <laughs> and, um, so, so I think what I'd say is that, you know, the great thing about free markets at their best is that they tackle problems obliquely, as John Kay would say, rather than directly. And maybe the solution isn't faster trains, it isn't faster aircraft, it's something, you know, lateral and different. And w one solution, of course, to, um, uh, you know, uh, longer flights is in-flight entertainment. I, I acquired a certain sort of weird accidental fame for making the point that, in some ways, adding Wi-Fi to existing trains is more of an improvement to, uh, to making those trains 50% faster. Right, your your example of this, and 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 then having supermodels serve uh, the, you know the it's finest wines. I suppose you might say Miesian example, where you, <laughs> you you spend all the money with the man who sweeps the floor, not with the man who cooks the food. Which is, you run relatively slow trains, but they have you know they're furnished like an Edwardian era New Orleans brothel, and you have the world's top male and female supermodels serving you free Chateau Petrus for the duration of the journey. Well, you could do that for less than the six billion it costs to run the high-speed rail link from St. Pancras to the uh, to the Kent coast, which I think netted out at reducing the journey to Paris, the journey time to Paris, from something like three hours and five minutes to two hours thirty-eight or something. And my right. argument was, well, don't, don't, I mean, no, I'm not being I'm not being absolutist here in that. 
if you take two French cities, Lyon, which I think is the third largest city in France, and, and Paris, which is the largest, before high-speed rail, they were, it was a four-hour journey, and high-speed rail reduced that to two. Now, I think that is, in human terms, that's a significant reduction in journey time, because it now means that a Lyonnais businessman can travel to Paris for the day, conduct some business, and get home without having to check into a hotel or whatever. So, you know, I think, I think you know, four-hour journeys reduced to two are quite significant. I wouldn't totally rule out high-speed rail um, for the, uh, you know, the, the city pairs of, say, Los Angeles and San Francisco, for instance, uh, particularly as you could stop in other places on the way, which planes can't. Um, but I think in some cases, what happens is people end up pursuing the numerical metric, which is speed or duration. And it's worth remembering that those numerical metrics don't translate into human well-being in a simple or linear way. Right, right. Yeah, we, I have this theory, Rory, that, that data inside organizations is a, is a lot like a, like a, a substance abuse problem, right? We get the, the managers and leaders get a little bit of data and then they want more. And more, and they, they and they end up slicing and dicing it to the point where the data means almost ac- means nothing. And in many cases, it's not really there to make better decisions. It's there to defend decisions yep. by basing them on a semblance of rationality. And yes, it's back, very worse, back to that idea. It's very mm-hmm. worst, of course. Uh, data is used. David Ogilvy didn't originate this, although it's sometimes attributed to him. Uh, you know, the idea that uh, people use research as a drunk uses a lamppost for support rather than illumination. Um, and I think in many cases, you know, a large amount of company expenditure on data is, at its best, it leads to better decisions. At at a kind of middle level, it leads to decisions which are easy to take because they have the semblance of sense and rationality, and the model at that stage may not be completely deranged. At their very worst, I think, um, they're in fact an arse-covering exercise by people making decisions because the less dependent the decision is on you and the more it is on some model you've outsourced to someone else, the less you suffer any bad consequences from that decision proving to be wrong. You say, well, of course, you can't fire me because my decision was based on perfectly rational uh, premises. And look, we did the numbers and it came out at 3.2 for option B, where it was only 1.1 for option, you know, the first option. Therefore, how could you criticize me for choosing option two? Right. And in some senses there, what you're effectively doing is buying an insurance policy against your decision going wrong. I mean, a large part of consulting operates this way, of course. Take it out to another decimal place. It'll seem more precise. (laughs) Absolutely. And of course, it's worth saying, of course, in organizations, there can be a value to shamanism, which is, you know, there's a value to getting everybody aligned around a single direction, even if that direction isn't perfect. I was talking to a military strategist, uh, General uh, Michael Jackson, who is head of the British Army. And he said in many cases in, in, in the military, a, deci- you know, a strategy which is completely clear and comprehensible to everybody, but is slightly suboptimal, may be better in terms of the outcome than trying to obtain a perfect decision, which then creates confusion and, and funk. So, you know, shamanism has its value, but I think the danger is, one, one of the books we, we chatted about briefly in the, in the break is a book called Risk Savvy by Gerd Gigerenza. And in that book, which I really recommend to anybody as one of the three best business books of the last year, uh, Gigerenza 
names this thing, which I suppose other psychologists must have been aware of, but I'd never really had it introduced to me as such, called uh, defensive decision-making. And that's the case where a doctor will carry out a medical procedure, not because statistically it makes sense to do so, but because you're less likely to be sued for over-intervention than you are for under-intervention. Oh, it's a big problem here, Roy, that the whole defense of medicine, because of our litigious nature here in the States, yeah, there, there's a lot of unnecessary medical procedures. And couple that with the fact that that's how doctors are paid here. They're paid for tests and procedures rather than some type of an outcome. And what's, what's so interesting about this is, you know, if, if defensive decision-making is explained to people, they go, yes, I can imagine that would affect my trivial decisions, but it affects life and death decisions in many cases. You know, send this person for their seventh X-ray of the year because if I don't, I might be exposed to litigation and so on. Um, it also affects uh, soccer in the World Cup, wonderfully explained in the new book Think, by, Think Like a Freak by Levitt and Dubner. Um, the reason... People taking penalty kicks tend to go to the left or the right rather than the middle. Is not because it's the best thing to do. Statistically speaking, you're probably better off kicking straight down the middle. But it's effectively the policy where if you kick left or right and the goalkeeper saves it, you look unlucky. If you right. kick down the middle and the goalkeeper saves it, even though that is less likely, you look like a total idiot. Right, right. No, that's, so, uh, no, that's a great, great example. And so I think in game theory there's something called minimax, which is you choose whichever option um, presents the least unfavorable worst-case scenario to you personally. Right. And it looks as though our brains instinctively ask that question all the time. Now, of course, it's interesting to someone like me working in the advertising industry because, of course, client fear is often dominated by this. You know, an advertising agency goes to a client and effectively goes, what you need to do is have a crazy advertising campaign with a dancing animated goat. <laughs> now, the guy kind of knows that the dancing animated goat will at least be noticeable and may work quite well. The problem is, if you do boring advertising and it doesn't work, you're unlucky. If you do weird advertising and it doesn't work, you lose your job. And so the natural tendency not to stick your head above the parapet is driven, I think, you know. And so, as you quite rightly said, this affects everything from medicine to in politics. It must be absolutely endemic. Um, Gigerenza believes the public sector suffers from it rather worse because it doesn't have adequate incentives to encourage people to be brave or slightly foolish. Right. Well, and, um, it's a really, really interesting, uh, I think it's a really, really interesting way of, of, of analyzing business behavior. And, you know, I think of looking at our own decisions, too. Right. And, Rory, when we come back from this break, I'm going to ask you about the difference between the idea and its mere execution uh, after this quick break uh, for, uh, from Sage One, our sponsor. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. As an entrepreneur, you're on an adventure. But there are parts of your business, like revenue and expenses, that don't feel very adventurous. At Sage One, we get it. We give you tools like easy invoicing, simple accounting, and reporting, so you can tackle your less exciting tasks by automating them. 
Stronger control of the numbers means more opportunities for profits. Sage One has integrated payment options that can actually increase your cash flow. Getting paid faster? Yes, please. It's time to take the boring out of business and get back in the action. Visit SageOne.com today. Your free trial is waiting. Are you interested in the topics discussed on The Soul of Enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose, Measure What Matters to Customers, and his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E and follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Lori Sutherland. And as always, you can contact uh, Ed or myself at by emailing us at T-S-O-E at Verisage.com. Let us know what you think of the show. And Rory, you wrote in Wikiman uh, that I'm perfectly happy giving ideas away because an idea is worthless unless it's executed and this is one area where I think I'm going to have to challenge you and and I'll tell you why because uh, an economist by the name of Thomas Sowell really changed my mind on this difference between an idea and its mere execution. Um, I know the conventional wisdom is that uh, ideas are everywhere and they're useless till they're executed. However, if you look at countries the ones that have the highest standard of living are the ones that come up with more ideas rather than merely executing them. I mean, I'd rather live in the country that dreamt up the iPhone or the Boeing Dreamliner rather than the country who just merely assembles it. So I wanted to kind of get your take on that because no, I, think I think it's... You're right. I, I, I probably recant that a bit. It's, it's very interesting, by the way, to look at the countries which do generate the most ideas. And if you take it as a proportion of GDP and population. The United States does pretty well, um, but once you factor in population and GDP size, it's in fact eclipsed by the Scandinavian countries, which I think is interesting. Yeah, and Israel. Um, I know Israel's Israel, way up likewise. there, too. I mean, in, in terms of innovation per head, um, uh, there are a few smaller countries which are really quite remarkable. Northern Europe tends to do pretty well as well. The UK is, is no slouch on that front. Uh, it tends to get a bit worse as you get further south. Right, um, right. I, the, I just thought it is interesting because you being a creative person with Ogilvy, I mean, don't you kind of get annoyed at the people who say, oh, well, great ideas are everywhere. It's the ex-. No, that's not true. Great no, ideas no, are not it, everywhere. It, it, it's not true. I mean, uh, I, I certainly think that some system for rewarding people for ideas, what that, how that reward system works is an interesting one. I mean, uh, you know, there are experiments with things like the Creative Commons and so forth where people say, as long as I'm credited, I'm not too um, bitter about it. Um, I think one of the views I would have, uh, which might be an interesting incentive scheme, uh, is that if someone takes an idea of mine and makes 
£50,000 with it, okay, uh, after putting in a fair amount of work of their own. To be honest, I'm happy to leave that. What would be wonderful is if there were a way that people could give away ideas, and the simple condition is you're free to use this up to a point, but if it turns into a million-pound business, that's when you have to divvy up. Right. Right. Uh, It's a little like I've always wondered if there were a way of selling works of art, which is, you know, I'm really happy to sell this work of art. The one thing I would want, uh, maybe I should have have sold my two-bedroom apartment in London under a similar contract, which is you can have this thing, you can pay... uh, what do they pay? Three hundred thousand pounds for it. The one condition I make is that if it's worth eight hundred thousand uh, in the next ten years, I'd like to see a little bit back. Right now, you know, because the way we the way we want to be rewarded for things isn't in strict proportion to their value, and I think there is a fear that comes from sharing ideas, which is it's not really the fear that someone might use them to you know to run their own little family business. It's really the fear that someone gets monumentally rich on, on, on the back of your own effort. And exactly. um, so uh, there's always a debate in the advertising industry about payment by results and so forth. It's very difficult to measure because the contribution of, uh, to isolate the contribution of one thing to a complex system is never all that easy anyway. Um, right. And I, you know, I think we just have to acknowledge the limitations. But some appreciation that if something turns into a spectacular success, you deserve to get slight, you know, you, you deserve something back. I think is something that everybody would agree is just innately fair. And we, we all know those case studies of people who've you know, done something remarkable online only to find someone else effectively minting it from it. Uh, however, when I talk about execution, I don't talk about manufacture. That's a fairly simple, uh, rational process. But I do think there is an element um, when you take a basic idea that the devil's in the details still. Right. And that... Uh, what we know, I think I, I, have, I have various enthusiasms which I try to fuse. I, I've come to the conclusion that it'll require someone much brighter than me to fuse them. But I'm interested in evolutionary thinking in general, not only in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the natural world, but in terms of looking at business through an evolutionary lens. Um, I'm interested in behavioral economics and psychology and, and decision science. And, you know, I, I, as far as possible, I, I, you know, I, I, it would be nice if someone could fuse these things. Maybe they never will. You, you know, one that's of the things a... I think is clear is that I'm also interested in complexity. And one of the things I think is true is that relatively small things can have very big effects. Um, you, you know, that's, that's a... It's a great segue because another one of our mentors is Peter Drucker, and he believed that businesses were a branch of the humanities. It was a liberal arts. And he actually wrote that because its purpose is to create a customer, the business enterprise has two and only these two basic functions, marketing and innovation, because those are the only two functions that produce results. Everything else is costs. And in the in your book, The Wiki Man, you talk about the only way you can understand marketing and branding is to understand this concept of satisfice, which is, you know, the, the word satisfy and suffice kind of combined to this. I think it's a Northumbrian term, isn't it? Um, yes, I, can think, you exp- I, think, I think it was, it's originally a sort of dialect word from Northumbria, and it was either borrowed or possibly separately invented by Herbert Simon. Um, right. Uh, interestingly, Drucker, of course, was Austrian himself, and I think his father, if I've got this right, was the best friend of Schumpeter, the Austrian economist. That is correct. In fact, if you read his book, uh, Adventures of a Bystander, his autobiography, it's a fantastic read, and he talks about that. 
So I, th- I, think, I, I think there's something very interesting there, because most businesses do not look at themselves in that way. They don't look at uh, as marketing and innovation as the principal value generators. And I think, I think there's a fundamental problem, which is that the, the, the standard equilibrium-based neoclassical view of economics is really like a system of medicine which can only diagnose one thing and only prescribe one thing. And the only thing it really cares about is efficiency. Right. And it's obsessed with optimization, um, despite the fact that, in fact, the, you know, the, the great way to found a successful business, I think, is to look at when all your competitors are obsessed with one metric and choose a different one. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, the example I always give is that you know, there are periods where an entire market obsesses around one thing. If, if you, you're familiar with digital cameras, there was a period where megapixels, the number of megapixels was absolutely everything. And for a time, that wasn't a bad metric because a camera with four megapixels is quite a lot better than one with two. And one with eight is a fair bit better than one with four. Beyond that point, unless you're taking photographs for the North Korean regime to be displayed on the side of apartment blocks. Uh, <laughs> to be frank, you know, eight, 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 million, eight megapixels is good enough for anybody most of the time. And I talked to professional photographers and I asked questions like, do you use RAW? And they go, nah, frankly, it takes up too much space. It's just a pain to work with. And the interesting thing there, I think, is that, um, first of all, you know, smart businesses often operate by suddenly reinventing, taking a market which is obsessed with one thing and effectively flipping it around something else. I mean, it, McDonald's would be a classic case. If, if you looked at the American diner, it was obsessed with choice. And McDonald's made the whole thing about speed. It massively reduced choice, but hugely increased speed of delivery. Right. Well, you and know, that, when you... you- when you delivered your Zeitgeist talk, you you talked about the uh, you know the peacock is a d- deliberate waste of resources and and this this obsession, this tedious quest for efficiency. Uh, it, it's something that uh, we call the effing debate: the difference between effectiveness and efficiency. And, and it just seems like organizations that pursue efficiency are hindering their effectiveness and their innovation. I mean, Walt Disney didn't make Snow White and the Seven. Uh, uh, Snow White and the Three Dwarfs. He made Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, not because it was, you know, he could have been more efficient. Downsizing at the, of course, Disney did have, as, as I think Alfred Hitchcock remarked, the best casting because if he didn't like a character, he could simply rip them up and throw them away. Um, <laughs> right. But um, no, this is absolutely true. And there's a very good friend of mine called Jules Goddard at London Business School, and he, but uh, funnily enough, also very influenced by the Austrians. And his argument is that. Uh, Strategy is the art of staying one step ahead of the need to be efficient. Yeah, that once your business, in fact, is only competing in, on price and efficiency grounds, it's already heading for a kind of death spiral. And the point he made is they looked for cases of businesses where, which had uh, maintained leadership in a field through cost leadership alone, which was one of the great theories of, you know, one of the three off-the-shelf strategies being cost leadership, I think others being, you know, occupying a specific niche and so forth. And they found almost none. And right. so the interesting thing is that standard sort of doctrine, probably as preached by the CFO, leads to businesses which are, in a sense, rather bad businesses. And I would argue also that the the approach to evaluating businesses that the financial community, the investor community, and the, the community of analysts tends to adopt 
we also need to be very cautious of because it may create a large number of very sameish businesses. I think the same is true of, of, of government regulation. That you say the purpose of a business in this field is this. Therefore, we will make the purpose of that business that and more so. A nice example Tim Harford pointed out on his blog recently, which is these things called the beer orders were introduced in the, in the late uh, 1980s in the UK, and it effectively prevented the brewers from owning pubs in large numbers. It rather like the, I, I think, the legislation with American cinema, where the studios at one stage owned the, the movie theatres. And it, was, it prevented this ve vertical um, uh, integration. And the whole purpose, as expressed by the uh, regulators, was to bring beer prices down. And they thought, you know, patently, this is anti-competitive, and when we make it more competitive, we'll get cheaper beer. In fact, what happened, beer prices went up, and pubs got a lot better. Because what people wanted wasn't really cheaper beer, it was better pubs to, to drink it in. Mm. And so right. you've got a whole you know, explosion of innovation in the UK pub trade, so you've got gastro pubs and micro pubs and micro brewery pubs and real ale pubs and so forth. And it was a kind of, uh, you know, a bit like the Cambrian explosion. You know, suddenly pubs started becoming much more diverse. And I think there's this worrying thing that if you pursue efficiency by your own defined measures, and the regulator also believes this is the sole goal, and the investors believe this is the sole goal, what you do is you create a lot of businesses which are very, very similar to each other, which are competing directly head-to-head, -head, which is not really what consumers want. What consumers want is biodiversity. Yeah, karaoke capitalism, as it's called. Yeah, ahead, uh, no, I, I, absolutely that. And I, th I think you know, a, a case I'd, I'd give would be the UK mobile phone networks, which are effectively largely as a product of regulation and a kind of duopoly system. Um, my complaint is there is no bargain basement mobile phone company, which is what I'd want for my kids, by the way, nor is there a business class mobile phone service where I can pay a premium and get better phone calls. Well, this is a great example, great example of one of the few times where a government innovation actually produced a good result. We have one more break here, and we'll be back with Rory Sutherland after this word from Sage One. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. As an entrepreneur, you're on an adventure. But there are parts of your business, like revenue and expenses, that don't feel very adventurous. At Sage One, we get it. We give you tools like easy invoicing, simple accounting and reporting, so you can tackle your less exciting tasks by automating them. Stronger control of the numbers means more opportunities for profits. Sage One has integrated payment options that can actually increase your cash flow. Getting paid faster? Yes, please. It's time to take the boring out of business and get back in the action. Visit SageOne.com today. Your free trial is waiting. Are you interested in the topics discussed on The Soul of Enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit Verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose. Measure what matters to customers. And his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E. And follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. 
when it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we're back with uh, Rory Sutherland. In David Ogilvy's book, Ogilvy on Advertising, he takes credit, credit for introducing the hourly billing back into advertising. Ron, Ron and I happen to believe that this was perhaps his biggest mistake, mostly because hourly billing is based on the labor theory of value, really. And the, um, what, what Ron and I like to, to tell professionals is if you bill by the hour, you're actually a practicing Marxist. And no, we want, yeah, exactly, <laughs> the, the labor theory of value, yeah. And what we, we wanted to know from you is, what do you think of the billable hour? And even more importantly, do you fill out a timesheet? Um, I can understand why David was um, enthused by the idea of hourly billing, because it's worth remembering that there was a downside to the old advertising system of being paid by commission. Um, uh, the, the downside was that you would spend a fortune preparing a fantastic advertising campaign for a client, and three days before it was due to run, and you were therefore due to receive your commission for the media running, there would be a fire in their factory, and the whole thing would be cancelled, and you'd end up effectively destitute. And if you were running a small business, and for, for his first decade or so, David was running a comparatively small ad agency, um, this was fairly terrifying. And you could argue from a competitive standpoint, of course, uh, when the creative agencies also bought media, it was a fairly large barrier to entry, whereas now you can start a creative agency effectively with a, you know, a Mac and a broadband connection and a small Rolodex. Um, so media buying probably acted as a barrier to entry into uh, advertising in that sense. Um, but the problem I think you have, one of the great things, I think, was that um, the commission was, in a weird way, an incentive for ad agencies to do less, because if you could run the same, same campaign two, day, two years running, it was disproportionately lucrative. Now, that's not always a bad thing, because there is the accusation, I think, among some people that a combination of marketing directors with a very rapid turnover and agencies that are keen always to be busy will sometimes reinvent brands uh, far more regularly than is beneficial in the marketplace. There's a huge value to having a really, really long-running 25, 30, 40-year-old property, whether it be a, a gecko or a kitten or whatever it may be, or just a, you know, uh, you know, a consistent tone of voice and a consistent visual identity. You know, th- that form of equity takes decades to build and in many cases I think can be destroyed by people who are too keen to intervene. That's one interesting point. I think that, you know, there's also a point which was that, um, to some extent, commission was payment by results, which is that if your advertising was successful, your client ran more of it, and you made disproportionately more money. Right, right. There, no, were, no. There, there was the unfortunate thing that you could be effectively you know, out of business because of circumstances entirely beyond your own control. Uh, so it's worth understanding why David, particularly with his small company background, felt that way, and quite a few of the smaller London agencies did the same. It's also true to say that it did bias agencies towards doing commission-friendly things. So the direct marketing industry, which should have been part of the advertising industry, and David was a passionate believer in that, 
effectively Ogilvy aside, nearly all direct marketing and direct mail agencies of the 60s, 70s and 80s were separate entities simply because um, no ad agency was interested in using a medium which didn't pay commission because the post didn't. Right, and you know, if you look at if you look at digital, uh, it's complicated because the media cost now may be a remarkably small proportion of the overall expenditure in creating a message. Uh, in, in, in perfect cases of successful viral campaigns, the media spend would of course be zero. So things things changed, and it needed reappraisal. The reason I think payment by the hour is particularly appealing to clients is an interesting one because you'd think that clients would be happier. Uh, paying by results purely. Um, uh, there is also an element which is that if you're buying something, it's not the idea of value is more complex than economics thinks. And Richard Saylor, in fact, has done some useful work where he makes a very strong distinction between the acquisition value, what the thing is worth, and the transaction value or transaction utility, if you like. And right. the experiment he always did was, you remember this, someone sitting on a beach, and you say, you're very thirsty, you would really like a cold beer, and I'll go and fetch you a cold Heineken from that place 200 yards down the beach. Tell me what you're willing to pay, and if it's below that price, I'll buy you the beer. Now, the interesting thing in his experiment was that the price people were willing to pay, even though the beer would be identical to consume and equally enjoyable, it was much higher if you stated that the place that you were buying the beer from was a boutique hotel than if it were a beach shack. Right, right. But Rory, you we know, there are... Have, we seem to have some sort of deep instinct, which probably is, you know, it's probably an evolutionary throwback to food sharing or something of this kind, that the <laughs> surplus should be equitably distributed between the two. But we have a particular fear of being ripped off. Right. The, 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 we're are... happy to pay $5 for a cold beer from a boutique hotel. Somehow paying that same $5 to the beach shack, which doesn't have the same overheads, just sticks in the craw. And it right. probably somehow ruins the taste of the beer. And um, that doesn't make any sense if you look at value in that totally conventional and kind of unitary way. But right. if you understand that, that probably our brains appraise value in different parts of the brain, which may not be all that well connected to each other. But when You've you, got a pair of shoes in your closet that you bought. You don't even like them very much, and you hardly ever wear them, but they were discounted from $300 to 120 or whatever it may be, and you couldn't resist buying them. You, know, you could say that Bernie Madoff was very, very good at creating transaction value, but the acquisition value was terrible. Right, right. And, and you know, on the billable hour, there are some glimmers of hope, though. If you look at Procter & Gamble, if you look at Coca-Cola, they are paying their agencies based upon their own internal value metric. And if you look at ad agencies like Crispin Porter or Anomaly, and there's a whole bunch of others, they do not have timesheets and they don't price by the hour. So why is it so hard to get a firm like Ogilvy or some of these other major advertisers to move away from the billable hour? In other words, why is it so entrenched? Um, precedent is part of it. Uh, it was really a consulting firm that cobbled this system together in a hurry and based it pretty much on the price model of, I think, consulting and legal services. Um, I, th I think it is, as, uh, as I said earlier, I think it is problematic in that it probably diminishes the flexibility of agencies to deploy people in strange mixtures against a problem and in strange ratios. 
Mm-hmm. You know, as I said earlier, we pretend that the advertising process is beautifully linear and that it's almost like you know, a manufacturing process or a production line because it gives us the semblance of credibility. Everybody who's been in any way involved in any successful and great advertising campaign knows that the process is very, very iterative. It's stochastic. It's experimental. You throw things away after two weeks and suddenly come up with something great at the last minute. And... Yeah. Uh, it's much, much messier than we pretend it is. Right. One of the problems about having billing is that it's a much friendlier system if you're doing something which is a neat kind of and replicable process than it is when you have a, the kind of problem which advertising problems typically are, which are highly complex and, uh, and, and where the solution is often extremely oblique. Right. Well, Roy, we, we've, we're going to have to get out of here, but uh, this has been fantastic having you. I thank you so much for, for being our guest and spending this hour with us. Uh, and hopefully you'll come back. And just one last real quick question. What are you reading right now? Uh, right now, I'm actually reading some fiction. Um, but, I'm also, uh, so, um, but I'm also reading um, a few books. There's one called Super Cooperators, which is a book by, I think, it's Martin Nowak which combines, there, there are a few books which start to fuse evolutionary biology with economics. One I'd really highly recommend, Eric Beinhocker's book, uh, which is The Origin of Wealth. Yes, that's a great book. Uh, All right, Rory, we've got to go, but thank you so much. Keep, keep preaching the value gospel. It's much appreciated, uh, the side of the Atlantic, and thank you very much indeed. You bet. Ed, we'll see you here uh, next week. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage One. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at www.verisage.com slash TSOE.